Welcome. You're listening to the Oyster Podcast. For submissions and feedback, please contact us at theoyster at oyis.org or send us a voice message. Thank you and enjoy. Hello, everyone. I'm Felicia, back with more updates and news about school. First and foremost, though, we'd like to welcome everyone back from winter break. It was nice to get a few weeks off, but it's time for us all to once again focus on our academics. Speaking of academics, after this week, OYIS will welcome its annual Interdisciplinary Unit Week, or IDU Week, along with DP examinations for the grade 11s. We're very excited to see how the students' projects come along this year, and we wish all of the DP students good luck on their exams. Hopefully, they're not too bitter about being left out of IDU Week in favor of test after test. With the end of IDU week and DP exam week, of course, comes the end of our first semester. It's been a great few months with wonderful new opportunities and learning experiences, and we as a school have persevered through even more troubles with COVID, which at this point almost seem endless. Let's hope the second semester comes with even more of these wonderful opportunities and experiences, and that we all persist through hardships together. In other news, thanks to the oh-so-delightful rising of COVID cases in Japan and worldwide, All of the school's clubs and after-school activities have been cancelled. The only exception is the after-school tutoring programs. Students, please keep this in mind and remember to go home straight after classes end, unless, of course, you have other obligations. We urge you all to take every measure and be very safe and hygienic during these times and in the future. Wash your hands, remain socially distanced, and, of course, keep your mask on. Stay healthy, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Hello everyone! For today's media section, we'll be talking about the 2020 Little Women film. For those who don't know, Little Women is the story of the lives of the Marsh sisters, Joe, Meg, Amy, and Beth, in Massachusetts during the 19th century. This was based on a book by Louisa May Alcott. The whole story is bound to warm your heart, and maybe make you shed a tear or two. It definitely did for me. To start off, Greta Gerwig is one of my favourite directors for her work on Lady Bird, which we have also done a section on in a previous episode. Her method of storytelling is something I find so unique about her. Little Women is split up into two sections, past and present, with a few key events merging the two timelines together. I've heard many people critique Gerwig's method of weaving these timelines together, saying that it feels messy and often difficult to follow. However, for me, that's one of the best parts of the film. Gerwig uses this technique to make us care about these characters so deeply. She continuously jumps between timelines where the characters experience sadness, pain, and happiness, so that once we reach certain climactic events, we already relate to and sympathize with them so much, because we feel like we've known them for so much longer than we actually have. Another element of this film that I love is the screenplay. Gerwig brings such a classic story into the modern world with a few minor changes from the source material and previous films that feel necessary and nuanced specifically with the ending of the film. I won't spoil anything, but it feels very fitting and surprisingly satisfying. Although this film is mostly a comforting and endearing story of friendship and family, it is also one of loss and troubles. There are a few key scenes that I found personally so moving, especially the ones between Joe and her mother towards the end of the film, and the ones between Beth and Mr. Lawrence. The scene feels so effortlessly written. They do fit with the time period, however, they bring it into the modern world, and the staging is so simple that it truly does put a spotlight on the actors and their delivery of the line. This brings me to the final point. 
The set and costume in this film were amazing. The way Gerwig stages her scenes, and the way the characters interact with their surroundings, feels very lived in and natural. The house that the Marchers live in has such a warm and soft colour palette that is so inviting, and the costumes are not only lovely to look at, but they hold significance in the scene, with costumes and appearances often being a subject of the discussion for the characters. I wanted to talk about the staging and framing of one scene in particular. This is a spoiler warning, so please skip ahead if that bothers you. Okay. In a scene between Laurie and Joe, where Laurie finally expresses his feelings for Joe, there is quite a big change from the previous movies that is made. Previously, when this scene plays out, the two characters remain pretty much still, sitting or standing in one place, and interacting with at least one prop or piece of furniture. However, in Gerwig's version, Laurie and Joe are walking through a large field. They remain moving through pretty much the entire scene. We are shown how large this area is beforehand, and the expansive environment that they are standing in makes this scene feel so much more dynamic. When they are talking, it feels more like a heated confrontation, with both parties simultaneously on the same page and disagreeing, an emotional whirlwind. Contrast this with the more mellow staging of the scenes before. It feels fresh and new, which is so hard to do with a scene that has already been done so many times before. However, that's exactly what Gerwig did. She adapted the story and made it feel fresh, while still maintaining what we all love about Little Women and the story and characters. This is a fun and touching family movie that I would definitely recommend to just about anyone. Thank you for listening. Butterfly lovers, Liang Shambo and Zhu Yingtai. There once lived a woman named Zhu Yingtai from a place named Xiangyu. She was the only daughter of the wealthy Zhu family, and she had a strong passion for books and poems. Yingtai's dream was to stay in Yuezhu, a city far from her soul in Xiangyu. However, during Jin Dynasty in ancient China, women were discouraged from pursuing scholarly paths and stay away from their homes. The solution Yingtai offered to her father was that she and her handmaid will be disguised as men at all times so that no one would notice and try to stop them. Mr. Zhu agreed with the deal, so Yingtai and a servant, disguised as men, set off to their journey to Xiangyu. In the middle of their journey, the woman met a man named Liang Shambo. He is a scholar who is also heading for Yuezhu. Yingtai and Shambo decided that they were to travel together and become friends. They didn't when they arrived in school. Instead, they became best friends who stuck together during their three whole years at school. They read, studied, and even shared the same room together. Yingtai secretly developed romantic feelings for Shambo, who had absolutely no idea that his best friend slash roommate was not a dude. One day, Yingtai received a letter from her father to return home. Because she liked Shambo very much, she decided to convince him that she was a woman and that she loved him before they parted. Shambo, however, wished to accompany her to a journey home, so Yingtai instead changed her plans to tell him then. During their journey, Yingtai gives several hints to Shambo that she is a woman, some very obvious. Unfortunately, Shambo remained absolutely clueless. He probably thought his best friend was being weird these days. Yingtai and Shambo eventually had to part reluctantly, the truth still covered.
Miraculously, however, Shamba realized that Yingtai was a woman by the time he reached his school in Shanggu. He also realized that he loved the two and wanted to marry her, so he visited Yingtai's home. Their reunion was filled with joy that lived very shortly. The reason why Yingtai was summoned back home was that she was arranged to be married to a different man picked by her father. Poor Shambo became heartbroken, went back to his home in Yuezu, and became terribly ill. He eventually passed away and got buried in Nanshan. The day of Yingtai's arranged marriage arrived. The bride heartbroken and the weather gloomy. The wedding procession was planned so that it must cross Nanshan where it would pass Shambo's grave. When Yingtai and the procession was about to pass, strong winds suddenly blew so that it was impossible for the procession to go on. Yingtai, grieving for her lost love, requested to pay her respects to Shambo's grave. When she descended from her palanquin, however, the grave suddenly opened into accompanied by a big clap of thunder. Before anyone can stop her, Yingtai threw herself in Shambo's grave which closed soon after. While everyone else was shocked from the event, the weather cleared and a pair of butterflies emerged from the grave. After they fluttered around the grave together, they flew away somewhere far away together. I will now conclude today's episode with some thoughts. Liang Shambo had no idea that Zhu Yingtai is a woman. So did everyone else in Yuezu City. Can it be a possibility that Yingtai looked convincingly masculine? 2. Liang Shanbo immediately fell in love with Yingtai as soon as he found out that she's a woman. Liang Shanbo already loved her before knowing the great truth. Liang Shanbo had a crush on a dude. Hey guys, I'm Mia B, and I'm back with another episode of This Is, where I explore artists, their biography, how they rose to fame, why people like them or don't like them, etc. etc. This week, I'll be talking about the tragic case of Amy Winehouse, but before we get into it, I just want to give a quick disclaimer that in today's episode, I will be talking about sensitive topics, such as alcohol and substance abuse and eating disorders. If you are sensitive to these topics, please skip this week's episode. If you don't know who Amy Winehouse is, first of all, what are you doing with your life? And second of all, you're really missing out. Amy was a British singer-songwriter who skyrocketed to fame in the early 2000s and was notorious for her huge winged eyeliner and controversy surrounding alcohol and substance abuse. So many people say that she died too young and could have had so much more success, and I agree with that. She was such a gifted artist, and unlike Frank Ocean or Tyler the Creator's music, her music wasn't hit or miss. It's always 100% a hit. I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that they don't appreciate Amy's work. Okay, so without further ado, let's get into the story of Amy Winehouse. Amy was born on September 14, 1983, in London. She was born to a Jewish family and was mainly raised by her mother, who got divorced from her father when Amy was nine. Like many other musical geniuses, she demonstrated interest and talent in music early on and was even enrolled in the Sylvia Young Theatre but was later expelled for wearing a forbidden nose ring. She also enrolled in the Brit School, which is a performing and creative arts school that is considered very prestigious in the UK. There, she showed talent for music as well as acting, and by the time she was 16, she was performing with jazz groups. 
Her musical career continued to progress, and when Amy was only 19 years old, she released her debut album titled Frank, an homage to the influence of Frank Sinatra. This album was widely acclaimed, and her smoky vocals showed unexpected maturity. Three years later, Amy released her second studio album, Back to Black, which is without doubt one of her most famous works and made headlines as many of the songs in the album were based on her unstable, on-again, off-again relationship with Blake Fielder Civil. Right around this time, Amy started developing a very unique look, with thick, dark cat liner that almost reached her eyebrows, tattoos all over the body, and an unhealthily skinny-looking figure. She would also style her hair into something that resembled a beehive, which all came to be her trademark look. With this new look and new album, she managed to reach the US charts at number 7, which at the time was the highest debut position ever for a British woman. In 2007, she married Blake Fielder Civil. Here's the thing though. I'm not pointing fingers at anyone, but it was after their marriage that Amy started behaving very difficult and unpredictable. She started cancelling shows, dramatically losing weight, fast, and gave performances while she was under the influence. On top of that, she was arrested in Norway for the possession of marijuana, and a video where Amy appeared to be smoking crack cocaine was going around the internet. Because of this controversial video, Amy found it difficult to acquire a visa to appear at the 2008 Grammy Awards ceremony in LA, and a special satellite performance needed to be broadcasted in order for her to be able to perform. Her album, Back to Black, was awarded five Grammys, including the dangerously contagious song titled Rehab, for Best Song and Best Recording. In November of 2008, she was named best-selling pop-slash-rock female at the World Music Awards, but her life seemed to be collapsing in front of the whole world. It was rumored that she had entered a rehab facility to help her overcome her alcohol and drug abuse, and her eating disorder that had started to spin out of control. I mean, you could really tell that her body was not that of a healthy adult woman, and it really wasn't a secret that she had problems with anorexia and bulimia either. However, she had not stayed long at the facility, and after she had left, the press continued to publish reports on Amy's drug abuse problem. Eventually, in 2009, Blake and Amy got divorced, and in 2011, Amy attempted to hold a comeback tour. Unfortunately, this show was also cancelled due to Amy's opening performance, in which she was very obviously intoxicated. On July 23, 2011, Amy was tragically found dead in her house in Camden. An investigation found that the cause of her death was alcohol poisoning after binge drinking following a period of abstinence. Naomi Perry, Amy's closest friend at the time, told the press that she thought that her bulimia also played a devastating role in her death. After a long fight with drugs, alcoholism and bulimia, Amy finally found peace at the age of 27. Her death was mourned by celebrities and fans across the world. Even Lady Gaga took to Twitter and wrote, Amy changed pop music forever. I remember knowing there was hope and feeling not alone because of her. She lived jazz. She lived the blues. Her short-lived life was important to many people and she will forever be remembered and loved. So that was a lot of heavy content right there, but let's talk about why I like her and her music so much now. I actually discovered Amy's music very early on, maybe when I was in elementary school, 
because my parents were huge fans of her. Our family is the type that never sits in silence and we always listen to music during meals and stuff like that. So while we ate breakfast or dinner together, Amy's music would be playing in the background through a CD player. So already from when I was young, I was enjoying her music. But it was only recently that I started listening to her music again. Last year, it was the 10-year mark since Amy's death, and my mom was listening to like an Amy Winehouse Essentials playlist and was cooking to it. And that's kind of when I was like, oh my god, and all the nostalgic feelings came back. And I added like all of her albums to my music library. My personal favorite has to be Amy's version of The Girl from Ipanema. The song originally is by Frank Sinatra and Antonio Carlos Jobim, but Amy's R&B soul adaptation of the song gives youth and liveliness to it that adds to the original version. I also particularly enjoy her ad-libs in the song, like the section where she just says a bunch of nonsense but still manages to make it sound good because her deep voice um, stands out so much in contrast to the consistent percussion sounds that accompany her vocals. favorite of course is Back to Black and for anyone who wants to see something real like a genuine performance where an artist sings their heart out and really means it definitely watch the Glastonbury live in 2008 where she performs this song live. I don't think I've ever watched a performance where the artist is this emotional and yet manages to make it beautiful and entertaining. You can clearly hear the crowd singing along to the whole song while Amy gives her, in my opinion, best ad-lib singing performance. Have a listen.
Okay, so this is completely irrelevant, but as I was researching about Amy, I discovered that there is actually a cultural phenomenon apparently called the 27 Club, which includes popular musicians, artists, and actors who died at the age of 27. Examples of people in this club would be Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, and also Amy Winehouse. I don't know, that's just something interesting I thought I would mention, um, but I do think it's a little silly because it's probably just that a lot of famous people have died at 27 years old, but it's not really like a proper pattern. And apparently it's also been disproven by scientists saying that the heavy focus on the number 7 makes it seem like it could be a thing, but it's actually not. Either way, I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode, and as always, all the aforementioned information I got from Britannica.com, and you should really listen to some of Amy's albums. They're great, I promise. Next week, there will be no podcast from me because I'll be busy taking the DP exams, which I'm obviously super excited for. But stay tuned for next week, where I'll be talking about Kendrick Lamar. Oh, I mean, next, next week. Right. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Bye! Thank you for listening to the Oyster Podcast. See you soon! <laughs>